Good afternoon, everyone. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Y'all wearing green? For those of you who know me, you know green is my absolute favorite color, and um, I get text messages like starting early in the morning from various friends around the world uh, saying, oh, it's Mimi's Day. They just call it Mimi's Day because I'm the only one that they know that actually um, acknowledges uh, St. Patrick's Day, just because it's green, not because I have some special affinity to St. Patrick or anything, but because it represents green. So wore a little green, and happy St. Patrick's Day. Well, today, um, I believe, is week three of our 40 Days of Prayer. Just a lot of emphasis have been placed on that, and as we've been going through this campaign from Rick Warren, Saddleback Church, and I've heard comments and feedback from various ones. The entire church is going through it, um, and the feedback that I've been getting and the comments that I've been hearing has been really positive. People have been telling me that they're actually really enjoying it. And in fact, after Pastor Q called out uh, Danny and Becky on their last day here before they moved to California because of Danny Bieber and his new job out there, remember he told Danny and Becky, you better do the 40 days with us even from a distance in California. And so because of that, he bought the workbooks. He's in my small group, in my life group, so I know. Uh, and so he bought the workbooks, and they're out there, and they've been getting settled and such. And he actually texted this past Wednesday. We have a life group chat room, and he texted to all of us last Wednesday, and he said, hey, we're a little late to the game, but we started the 40 Days of Prayer book. It's been awesome so far. So that was really good to hear that even on the West Coast, three-hour difference, he and his wife, in the midst of a new job and moving in and stuff, they're keeping up and, and they're doing this. And then later, he sent another text and he said, also, totally random note, but Rick Warren, doesn't, Rick Warren looks different than what I thought he would. So that tells me he's actually following along and watching the videos on YouTube as well. So yeah, I don't know what he thought Rick Warren would look like, but he's like, Rick Warren does not look like what I thought he would. So those of you guys um, been watching the videos as well, whether in your small groups and if you're unable to meet for whatever reason, it's all up on YouTube. So please go ahead and follow that. If they can do it from California, y'all have no excuses. You can do it here. Now this week, I believe that everybody in your small groups, you're going to be looking at part one of the Lord's Prayer. Um, you're going to be, and then part two will be, next session two will be next week. But this week, when you meet, the video that you're going to watch of Pastor Rick speaking, as well as the fill in the blank, and as you follow along in your workbook, will be on the Lord's Prayer. So today, my message, of course, is going to be on prayer. Uh, but more specifically, it's going to be about how there's power in praying together how there's power in praying together. And I'm going to be looking at Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. But before I do, I thought this was amusing. How many of you guys have ever seen this? How many of you guys have actually used this? Have you seen this? Have you guys ever used this? This kind of happened to me where, um, well, it's different. I was an intern at a church in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I was in seminary. And the church that I was serving at as an intern, they were having a VBS meeting. And I um, sat in on the meeting, and they were doing, you know, meeting and training and stuff like that. But I came in late, and I sat in kind of the very back of the sanctuary uh, while the meeting was happening. And, it, you know, in pews. It's an old, small church. And I put my head down, and I fell asleep. I, on the front pew in front of me, I, you know, lowered my uh, head on my 
arm and I fell asleep. And then when I woke up, everybody was gone. And so I was like, what? what? <laughs> I was like, what time is it? And then I run out and they're now out, you know, hanging around the parking lot and stuff like that. And I'm like, you guys, why did y'all leave me there? And they were like, we thought you were praying. We didn't want to bother you. <laughs> So, you know, that's one of the perks, I guess, of being a pastor is people never assume that you've just fallen asleep. They think you're deep in prayer, <laughs> but I'd fallen asleep. But yeah, so they left me there thinking, oh, let's not disturb her. She's deeply praying for VBS, you know, with her head down. But um, I just thought that this is really, really amusing. Also, I wanted to say a few comments about Pastor Q's message last week. It was really good, but some of the comments um, that he said I want to wholeheartedly agree with, one of the things he said was, louder does not necessarily mean more passionate. Louder does not mean more passionate. That God is not deaf. Just because you're screaming and ah to God, he can still hear the small quiet prayers. It doesn't mean that you're more passionate. And I say that because, as you know, Pastor Q, his style of preaching, he's all up in your face, back and forth, walking around. I like to stay right safely behind this right there. You'll never see me walking around up there. But it doesn't mean I'm less passionate. The other thing I would add to that is longer does not mean more spiritual. Longer prayers does not mean more spiritual. But when we were in Seattle at a church, um, and this was a Korean ministry, a lot of older folks, a very deep Presbyterian church, about four or 500 members, and again, they're older Koreans, and the service is in Korean, and they had a lot of elders. I remember that when I was on staff there as a youth pastor, just like Richard came and prayed, during the worship service, we would have different elders come and pray for the service. But what was happening was that these elders were praying, and I'm not even exaggerating when I say their prayers were 10 minutes, if not longer. It was like 10, 12 minutes. Like, you know, we would time it, and it was 10, 12 minutes. And the senior pastor got upset and because they were praying. They were mentioning every single missionary they help. They prayed about literally like every continent around the world. They mentioned every ministry in the church. I mean, I mean, it's good, but in the place of like a, you know, opening prayer for the service and they were, so the senior pastor was getting upset because the person praying was eating into his sermon time. They had to leave the sanctuary because another group had to come in. And so if the prayer goes 15 minutes, his sermon time is going to have to go because they have to end no matter what at a certain time. So he was getting upset. My husband worked in the back audio um, tech room, the sound room. They actually had a broadcasting room with a glass and separ separate room. So when my husband worked there, the senior pastor actually told him, cut the mic. <laughs> when the elders go too long, cut the mic. And so, you know, he was like, oh. And really, the senior pastor was quite upset about this. Um, and in all our time at that Seattle, ch Seattle church, I believe that Hoon had to do it once. Uh, he did cut the mic. And, you know, the, he's, you know, praying, he has his eyes closed and his elder, you know, is praying, 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 and then his mic stops working. And then we're all like, what's going on? And then I guess he mumbled amen and he, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> got off the stage. It's like the Oscars, you know, when you hear that band, when you hear the orchestra start playing, you better, you know, say thank you and then get off the stage type of thing. So, you know, various things um, about prayer. <clears throat> and one more thing I want to mention, Pastor Q's last week's message was, what makes a good prayer? 
what makes a good prayer? Is it loud? Is it, you know, making sure you do the A-C-T-S? You have to adore. You have to add, sprinkle some thanksgiving in there. You've got to, you know, do some uh, supplication in there. You've got to confess a few things. Do you hit all those things? What makes a good prayer? And in my house, um, one thing that really, really frustrates my husband is mealtime prayers. Mealtime prayers, we say prayers together, Emma, Maddie, and I, and they're smiling because they know. What does daddy always say about mealtime prayers? What makes a good mealtime prayer? Pray about the food. Did you hear Emma? She said pray about the food because he says that when people are asked to pray for the meal, oftentimes a lot of people will pray about everything. They'll pray about world peace. They'll pray about everything else but the food. Thankful for the food. Bless the food. Bless the hands that prepare the food. They forget to mention the food, but they start, you know, confessing things and blessing and praying other things during the meal prayer. And, at, and you're like hungry and you're just like, what in the world? You didn't have quiet time today, did you? You're just just bringing it all out during the meal prayer. So I just wanted to add on to a few things that Pastor Q said last week about prayer. So as we've been doing this 40 days of prayer together, I've been thinking about what prayer really means to different people and what people's attitudes are towards praying. We have a lot of misconceptions about prayer, what prayer is, how we should pray, how often we should pray, all these kind of things. But for most people, prayer usually involves a request needing or wanting something from God. And that's, sadly, that's the um, time that most people will pray. Even people who've never prayed in their life or who don't pray often, when they need something, they want something, and there's a request, that's when they will pray. And I'm not talking about, like I said, the adoration prayers or the confession prayers or the prayer for healing and things like that, but, uh, you know, just Regular prayer when you're requesting things and only praying to request things and ask for things. But even when they need or want something from God, there are still some people who don't pray. And it's because this is their attitude. They think God's going to do what God's going to do. So it doesn't matter whether we pray or not. Right? You've heard that. You know, some people say, oh, you should pray about it. And you're like, why? Why pray? God's going to do what he's going to do. And being Presbyterians, some people will think, I mean, it's already predestined to be that way. It's already going to happen. It's all in God's hands. It's preordained. You know, it's going to be that way. So others consider praying as a last resort after they have exhausted all other options, all other possibilities. And then as a last resort, they will go to prayer. And it's kind of sort of like a final, um, you know, a Hail Mary, you know, during football, you just kind of throw that last pass hoping for a touchdown. And I know people who, after they've tried everything else, they just kind of throw up a prayer to heaven. Do you know what I'm talking about? They just kind of toss it up there to God and hope that God will catch it and hear it and answer that prayer. I hear people say, there's nothing left to do but pray. All we can do now is pray. You know, I hear that a lot. And I'm thinking, why didn't they first begin with prayer? Begin with prayer. They're doing it backwards. They do everything else, you know, run around, you know, try to work things out. All that's left to do is pray. All we can do now is pray. And again, I think that's the first thing you should do. Pray, 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 and see where God's leading, whether you need to, you know, go talk to that person, whether you need to actually go and do this or do that, that God will speak to you in praying first. And I also wonder if people really are praying for you when they say, I'm praying for you. As a pastor, you all know, you can imagine how many prayer requests I get. 
So many, right? So I wonder, you must wonder too, when you text me, when you, um, you know, email, when you call me or in passing ask me to pray for you, I bet you you are doubting probably, like, oh, she must have a million prayer requests. Is she really praying for me? Did she really pray for me, right? And you see all over Facebook and um, people are tweeting. When people see um, status updates and it mentions um, some sort of a, um, a sick relative or some tragedy or some hardship, the go-to thing is my thoughts and prayers are with you. Our thoughts and prayers are with you. And I know that some people, they don't even have a religion. So I don't know who or what they're praying to. Because, you know what I mean, like whether they be atheists, whether they be, you know, if they're Muslim or, or other religion, they've got gods, small g, um, gods that they will pray to. But who, who and what are they praying to when they say, um, I'll pray for you, or our thoughts and prayers are with you? I think I've heard every United States president say that after uh, major tragic events, school shootings, uh, hurricanes, floodings, things like that. They'll come on TV, national TV, and say, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims of such and such and so and so. And I've often wondered, really? Is, uh, is the first lady and him really um, praying for those people? And for a lack of something better to say, it's become really, really uh, cliche just to say that. It's, it's, there's nothing really to say. And so, again, they say, our thoughts and prayers are with you. And for me, and I think I've shared this before, because I get so many prayer requests, my thing and what I like to do is when I see, you know, in the chat room, ding, pops up and says, oh, pray for my son who's sick. Ding, pray for I have an exam tomorrow or I have a job interview tomorrow. Ding, and I see those things. If I don't in that moment even just say a quick prayer, then I'll forget or I won't get to it because I've got so much. So I think I've said this before that if those of you trying to figure out how to manage all these prayer requests, when it comes up, just Pause in your tracks even for a second and be like, God, I'm praying over this request right here. It doesn't even have to be long. You don't have to go all into it and, you know, all this. But um, just quickly, God, you see this prayer request that just popped up on my phone. Um, we need you in this. You know, you have to be here for this, whatever the prayer request was, stuff like that. Now, if it's a long-term type of prayer request, I have a prayer app. How many of you all have a prayer app? Yeah, yeah, I see some hands. I have a prayer app that keeps me um, organized. It's really good. It organizes by groupings, by dates, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. And then there's a little check. You, you hit the button, and it says you, you prayed for that person each day. And then I have a huge list that says, that says um, you're behind. <laughs> like, I have 10 prayer requests that I didn't check saying that I prayed for them that day. So then I'm behind, so I have to double pray the next day. But it keeps me honest, and I have to, like, you know, click this thing. Um, but if you make it onto my prayer app, then it's serious. It's serious. We're talking, like, the people with cancer, uh, trying to get into a certain college. Long-term type prayer requests, if you make it onto my app, then I'm praying for you. And it keeps me, like I said, it checks me to make sure that I am doing that. So my friends and I, we have a group chat room, Kakao, we do the Kakao talk. And when we ask for prayers for something, what we've started to do and what we do nine times out of 10, more often than not, is we actually take the time to type out our prayers and we text it into the room. You know, not when you're driving or not whenever, but just that day, if I see a prayer request that morning, maybe I won't get to it until that night while I'm in bed. Um, but we will type out 
actually our prayer requests. And there's seven of us in this chat room. And it's been so, so, so good because we can all read the prayers. All seven of us read the prayers. We're strengthened and encouraged by it. And we all respond with a loud amen, all caps, you know, amen. And then there's like little emojis and emoticons and uh, things like that. But everybody's shouting, you know, if there's a really good prayer that one of the friends posts up, then everybody, all caps, amen, amen that. Yes, sister, believing for that. You know, there's just this community of accountability and encouragement in that. And again, they're not long prayers. Let me share a quick example. Um, some of you know, this past Wednesday, I had a dental procedure. And I hate going to the dentist. It's super scary. Um, and I had a dental procedure last Wednesday, and it was a major um, surgery, a molar extraction. And not only did they have to extract this huge molar back there, but it was infected. So he had to clean out the infection. I've been on antibiotics for like a month. And they had to do some bone grafting. And now I have sutures and stitching in there. It's, so it was major. And so I called out a SOS. I asked for prayer from my small group, from my group of friends, and all these people. I asked various groups to be praying for me before my procedure 10 a.m. And so when I got to the dentist and I was sitting in his chair, I said to the dentist before he started, I said, oh, a lot of people are praying for me right now. I told the dentist, a lot of people are praying for me and for you to do a good job. <laughs> no pressure, but a lot of people are praying for you to do a good job. And then I actually pulled up one of the prayers that my friend... Um, I read it to him. I said, I'm not joking. Look. And I showed him this prayer. And here's a prayer from one of my friends. It says, God, would you be with Mimi throughout her molar extraction? We pray that you would guide the hand of the dentist and that everything would go smoothly without any complications. May your peace reign over Mimi in Jesus' name. Very simple, but she texted it. I read that to the dentist, right? He loved it. He loved it. And then during the procedure, the dental assistant, she dropped something and spilled and made a mess. And the sanitized um, tools, whatever, got all unsanitized, whatever. And so she had to clean it all up and stuff. And so the dentist says to me, he goes, hey, next time, have them pray for her too. Have them pray for me. He's like, next time, include my dental assistant in your prayers. And then when he was done at the end of the procedure, he actually, he says to me, that went really well. You know, everything went fine. The infection, I was able to get all of it. It looks good. It's going to heal really well. Can you have them pray for me every day? He actually said that to me. He's like, can you have that group, the people that you're calling about? He's like, can you have them pray for me every day? And I just laughed. He's Catholic. So we talk about Lent. We're talking about giving up something for Lent and things like that. He's a really good guy. If you want uh, a reference or a recommendation, he's really good. He's on Rockville Pike. <laughs> um, but for many Christians today, I believe the priority and just the power and the place of prayer in our lives is lost. Because it's just, it's supposed to be so natural to us as breathing that I don't think we emphasize it enough or really take it into account. Um, and this is contradictory to what we find in Scripture. House of Prayer. In the Gospels, we read about the account of Jesus. He's clearing the temple courts, right? And he's driving out the merchants who are buying and selling. And he quotes the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And this is Jesus. And he quoting him, Jesus says, oops, oops, oops. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, right? And then E.M. Bounds, he's a very famous pastor, and he is known for his classic books on prayer. He has lots and lots of books on prayers. I'm sure you've heard of him, but quite old. His very first book was published in 1907. 
that tells you how long ago it was. And this is what he said about this particular passage. He says, Our Lord put peculiar emphasis upon what the church was when he cast out the buyers and sellers in the temple. Repeating the words from Isaiah, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer. He makes prayer preeminent, that which stands out above all else in the house of God. They who sidetrack prayer or seek to minimize it and give it a secondary place pervert the church of God, and they make it something less and other than it is ordained to be. Of all the various ways to describe the Father's house, our Lord Jesus emphasizes prayer. That's our church is named after. I thought that that was very interesting and very telling because of what activity Jesus associated most with the people of God. He said, my Father's house is a house of prayer. You know, there's healing that happens. There's praise that happens. There's, you know, ministry that happens. There's um, mercy. There's um, social, you know, services and things that happen all in the house of prayer. But it's very telling that, that this activity of prayer is what he associates with the people of God most. Bounds goes on to say, the life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on prayer. And the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. The very place is made sacred by its ministry. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. Such a good quote. Without it, the church is lifeless and powerless. We see the importance and the place of prayer in Jesus' own life. Jesus knew that prayer was such a priority. As we read through the Gospels, countless times we realize that he himself took time to pray. If Jesus needs to pray, how much more so us, right? Um, and he takes the time to pray, and oftentimes he prays before every critical juncture in his life, before every critical uh, decision or movement in his life and ministry. So I want to look as some examples from Jesus' own life about his prayer. Mark 1.35. We see that Jesus often prayed before sunrise. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to pray. So often it was in sun, before sunrise. And then Matthew 26.36-45. Jesus continued to pray when others fell asleep. In the, garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes his disciples to keep watch and to pray with him. Three times while praying through the night, Jesus catches his um, disciples sleeping. In the passage, I won't read it to you, but it's here if you want to look it up. Verses 36 to 45. Thirdly, Luke chapter 5, 16 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So here you see him withdrawing and praying. Luke 6, 12 through 13 says, he also spent an entire night in prayer before um, choosing his 12 disciples. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So this is a major decision, choosing the 12, right? And you see that he prayed all night before this major decision. Luke chapter 3, 21. Jesus prayed at his baptism and heaven opened. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. So you see him praying even in this pivotal moment as he's being baptized that heaven opens. 
few more. Luke 9, 28 and 29. And it was while he was praying that he became transfigured. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So as he's praying, the transfiguration. And finally, Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42, on the night of his arrest, Luke twenty-two forty-four says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is an actual medical condition, I'm sure um, various preachers have said. It's called hematidrosis. It's a very rare condition, but um, it happens where a human being sweats out actual blood. I mean, can you imagine praying with such intensity under such distress to have drops of blood coming out as you pray? And just as Jesus' own life that we can see exemplified that he was a praying person and the praying life, the importance of this praying life was not lost on his disciples because the disciples are with him. They see him praying. They know that he's praying. The disciples were so impressed and they were so challenged by their master and their teacher, rabbi's prayer life, that they petitioned Jesus to teach them to pray. So here's the disciples. Luke chapter 11, 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. It's worth noting, and Pastor Q has mentioned it several times too, that although Jesus was the greatest preacher, greatest teacher, healer, miracle worker, you know, he walks on water, all these things, the disciples didn't request instructions on how to do any of those things. It's interesting to note that this is the one request. It's likely that when they saw and heard Jesus pray, they realized that prayer was the key to everything else. If they knew how to pray, when to pray, and were in prayer, everything else, the preaching, the teaching, the healing, the miracles, that would all come. The key was prayer, and it would unlock the doors to everything else. So they didn't have to ask Jesus, can you, you know, teach me, show me, instruct me on healing? I just want to learn how to heal. But they realize if they're in that place of prayer and the deep communion with God, they would be able to do all the rest of these things. C.H. Spurgeon, another one, he's very, very, um, he's popular, very successful preacher from old Victorian England during the late 1800s. I'm sure you guys have heard of him, C.H. Spurgeon, late 1800s. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. <laughs> I don't know if you would want to be known as that. I mean, I wouldn't want to be known as the Princess of Preachers or Queen of Preachers. I don't know. But he was known as the Prince of Preachers. And he said, I would rather teach one man to pray than 10 men to preach. And again, he's the Prince of Preachers. He has a lot to teach. You know, he has a lot to say about preaching. But he says, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. A note about Pastor Shin, who will be coming for our covenant retreat. You know, he has many gifts, and you all know that he is really, really has the anointing and gift of healing. When he was in Seattle, healing and revival broke out. When I was in Seattle at the same time that he was in Seattle, he was ministering on UW campus, the University of Washington. Um, and all kinds of allergies were being healed allergies. And you've heard his testimony where he would say, like, 
come on, God, allergies? I'm going for like cancer. I'm going for, you know, these big things and you're going to give me allergies. But Seriously, people with food allergies, hay fever, seasonal allergies, um, all kinds of things were really being healed. And so he is such a man of great giftings, you know, just in his preaching and everything else like that. But if you ask him, he has said this multiple times as I've talked to him, he wants the one thing he wants to be known for is praying. Not about the healing, not even about speaking, not even all these other things. But the one thing he wants to be known for is praying. So we see the importance of prayer here. And I read somewhere that you can tell a lot about a church by the attendance at its various meetings or gatherings. You can tell a lot about a church by the attendance, how many people come out for the various events and activities and things of the church. So Sunday morning, here we are. Look at how many people are here, how many people come to our Sunday morning worship service, right, Sunday afternoon. The Sunday morning or afternoon worship service, for example, it reveals the popularity of the church. You know, that church down the road where, oh, it's, it's the new happening thing, everybody goes to that, and, um, you know, they've got a great program, they've got really good people there, and, you know, it's just thriving and bustling. So the attendance there reveals the popularity of the church. The attendance of a Bible study if you have Bible study meetings at the church, it indicates the popularity of the pastor or teacher most often that teaches that Bible study. So if Pastor Q and I are both teaching two different classes, how many of you show up for his class, how many of you show up for my class will be an indication to us who's more popular. And no, I'm just kidding. But, you know, a lot of times it's based on who's teaching. Don't you want to know who's going to be teaching? Yeah, you want to learn the Bible, but it matters greatly who is going to be teaching it, right? So the Bible study meetings and the numbers and who comes indicates the popularity of the pastor or teacher. But the size of the prayer meetings... The size of the Wednesday nights, the Saturday night marveling place, the early morning prayers, the special prayer meetings that get called, uh, Passion Holy Week prayer meetings. The size of the prayer meeting shows the popularity of Jesus in that church. It shows the popularity of Jesus in that church. It's nothing else that draws them. It's not about the fame or charisma of the speaker and the leader. It's not about the popularity of, oh, so-and-so goes there. There's a really large group of single women at that church, you know, just for different reasons why you might want to go. They have a great kids program, but it shows the popularity of Jesus in that church. So I want to present the case for the importance of corporate prayer in the life of the believer. Corporate prayer. Yes, oftentimes our prayers are very personal and private. There are certain times where I do need to pray and things that I pray about that I don't want anybody near me to hear. Right? It's just between me and God, between me and the good Lord. So oftentimes that's true. But there's also a place, and we want to put a great emphasis on the body of Christ, on the fellowship of believers, on doing life together. Isn't that what we say? We have small groups, and we try not to call them small groups. We call them life groups because we want you to interact and do life together. And we don't have to look any farther than the early church. The early church in Acts, they considered praying together to be a priority. I don't know how and why we've gotten so far from that. But if you look in Acts and 
in the early church, one of the number one activities, the things that they did together was they gathered regularly, corporately. It wasn't, you know, a lot about the person praying by themselves, but it was always just these gatherings and corporate prayer of people. Nearly every important event in the apostolic church was preceded by prayer meetings. Revivals, happenings, great outpourings, uh, movements and things like that was preceded by not individuals all praying alone in their houses, but by corporate masses coming together and just stadium-filled you know, places of, of just this corporate prayer, people crying out together in one voice for God. If you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, I'm going to go through uh, pretty quick those three passages. Acts chapter 1, 12 through 14. The disciples returned to Jerusalem immediately after having witnessed Jesus being taken up to heaven, right? Before their very eyes, they see and they witness Jesus being taken, uh, taken up. And Jesus commands them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift. Wait in Jerusalem for the gift, which is the Holy Spirit, uh, whom God the Father has promised for them. So... Acts 12 through 14. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. As they gathered together in this upper room to wait, they prayed. And their prayer was persistent, devoting themselves to set times of daily corporate prayer. They were gathered together, set times of daily corporate prayer. Verse 14 again, they joined together constantly in prayer. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. Verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 44. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. This is the Acts church. This is the early church. They were together corporately. And what were they doing? They were always praying together. They met regularly. They devoted some, themselves to it, um, praying. And, and they gathered for the purpose of breaking bread together. And you know, right? And every day, daily, God was adding to their numbers. Because when you're praying by yourself at home, I know the, uh, there's another verse in Bible text that says you shouldn't pray to be seen. But there are times when the churches need to rise up and call out and, you know, put on social media. We're having a prayer meeting. We're having a prayer gathering. We're going to have a big, you know, hoopla and everybody's just come and spirit's going to break out. Where there's got to be this corporate thing where the non-Christian world sees that, that people are moving, that people are praying, people are on their knees, people are attending. They're driving an hour to get to this prayer meeting. The non-Christians in the world need to see, we will drive one or two hours to pray. I will drive two hours to pray for 30 minutes and drive two hours back home. That we are willing to, you know, gather with like-minded and other people to pray for 30 minutes, even though it takes me an hour to get there. People need to hear and to see and be aware of that, that our dedication and our commitment to that kind of prayer. And lastly, Acts 4, 23 
Acts 4, 23 to 31. I won't, I won't read the whole thing. Peter and John are there put in jail. And they're taken before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high council. And because they were taken and put in jail because they were doing their radical preaching. And they were ordered to stop preaching. They were ordered to stop teaching in Jesus' name. And so, verse 23, upon their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So as soon as they're released, they go back and, and tell them what's going on, and they all, boom, they corporately, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. This is the first thing they do when they get released, they call a prayer meeting. They come out, they're out of jail, and they call a prayer meeting and say, we need to pray about this. And then skipping to verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. In the book of Acts, the believers never lost their priority of continuous prayer, of gathering together, coming together corporately to pray. That's how they maintained their revival and their fire for so long. I mean, there was massive persecution back then, massive, whether you got jailed, whether you got crucified, whether you got flogged and beaten and stoned and, you know, it was a matter of life and death, but these people were traveling and going and gathering together. If you want to be safe and you don't want to be persecuted, you don't want to be caught, yeah, go into your little prayer closet, shut the door, and quietly pray so no one sees you and so no one is aware that that's what you're doing. But even in the, the culture of persecution, it was important for them to gather, whether it be in public places, in the temples, and you know, people's homes, in the upper room, windows open, things like that, for people to continue to pray. It was very important to them. So I don't know what our excuse is. We're not being persecuted. If we all gather together to pray and the windows are open and people drive by and they see us, they're not going to persecute us or... You know, so we don't have an excuse, and yet we're shy and we're reluctant to do it. And so that's how they maintain their revival and fire. You know, they say that there's um, not safety in numbers, but yeah, maybe safety in numbers because of the persecution and stuff. But there's power in just in sheer numbers. Continuous corporate prayer was the vitality and power of the New Testament church. When the people meet together with one voice in unity, there's power in their prayers. If we want to see spiritual revival, if we want to see spiritual awakening happening now in our time, it'll come about as a result of corporate prayer. It'll come about as a result of people getting together and praying. For example, for example, the Fulton Street prayer meeting that sparked a revival in America in 1858 began with only six people. Within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen gathering daily for prayers in New York City. Can you imagine that happening today? In New York City, 10,000 Wall Street and business people gathering for prayer. And within two years, one million converts were added to the American church. A.T. Pearson said, there has never been a revival in any country that has not begun in united prayer. And no revival has ever continued beyond the duration of those prayer meetings. 
This is so true. When you look through history and the history of revival and things like that, you know, that fervor and that prayer and everything that happens, and when that dies down, when the praying of the aspect of it dies down, a lot of times you're like, oh, what happened? And, and that great awakening or the revival or um, that moment has passed. There's power in praying together. Jesus assures us in Matthew 18, 19, and 20, very, very well-known verse. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. When someone is praying out loud, surrounded by a group, and you hear various people interject, amen, or they say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, right? In prayer meetings and stuff, someone has the mic and they're praying, and you hear different people saying, amen, yes, Lord, you know, all this stuff, right? Throughout the prayer, they're agreeing. They're agreeing. Someone's praying up front with the mic, and I'm agreeing with that person. Yes, Lord. Yes, I believe it. Amen, Lord. Amen means so be it. Or it means it is so. So be it or it is so. It's expressing your agreement with what is being prayed. So if you look at this verse, if at least two of you are agreeing, so at least two of you are saying amen to something, Jesus says it will be done. So when someone's praying and you say amen, brother, amen, sister, yes, yes, Lord, may it be. You're agreeing with that person, and Jesus says, it will be done. Now, this is more difficult to do when you're praying alone. When it's me, myself, and I, (laughs) the three of us, no, me, myself, and I. So, yes, when there is a place for personal, private, individual prayer, but where two or three or more are gathered in, like, prayer meetings, and other people are agreeing in spirit with me and saying amen to my prayers. That's why I said that chat room. We will text and type out prayers. Everyone else in the chat room will be like, amen, amen, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. We agree in prayer together, even though we're not physically together in name. We're together in that chat room in cyberspace or something, and we are agreeing, two or three of us. As the praise team comes up, I want to close by saying, having a private prayer life is great. Jesus prayed in solitude early in the morning. Before the sun came up, he went, found a solitary place to pray. Yes, Jesus prayed in in solitude. But I want you to consider the power of praying with others. To join, to seek out, to participate in various prayer meetings and gatherings. Just to come out and say amen. Some people say, oh, I'm uncomfortable. I'm not into group prayer. I don't want other people to hear me pray. That's fine. Can you just come out and say amen to other people's prayers? Because we're going to need the two or three gathered in his name, right? I know Pastor Q prays oftentimes by himself at the early morning prayer meetings. That's just him. Surprise him. Show up and say amen from the back of the room while he's praying. Say, I amen your prayers, Pastor Q. You know, we're going to need the two or three, if not more to say the amens, and yes, Lord, may it be. To come out, to join, seek out, and participate, and say amen. Agree with one another in prayer, because it is powerful. So I want to ask you, are you regularly praying with someone else? You may have a fantastic, awesome prayer life, but are you regularly praying with someone else? Is it your husband? Is it your wife, your children? Is it with your parents? Is it with a close friend, a neighbor, 
a coworker. I know many people in their workplaces, they find someone else, like if you're a school teacher and you find that another teacher um, is a prayer warrior and they get together during lunchtime or before class starts and they pray for their kids, you know. So are you praying regularly with someone else? Or are you regularly attending or participating in a prayer meeting? a prayer group, whether it be the Saturday night um, Marveling Place remix for children, whether it be women's prayer once a month, Wednesday night hour of prayer that we have, early morning prayer. There are so many opportunities, and, and we should be even doing more, but we're not seeing the attendance and participation that we ought to be seeing in these regular prayer meetings. It's in the worship bulletin. It's a list of prayer meetings, and it says all of them. We should be... So we should have so many people coming that Pastor Q and I need to talk about making a second um, or changing rooms to the bigger room or making, adding a second prayer meeting because, you know, it's just too many people uh, in that time slot. So we should add a Thursday night prayer meeting or a Friday night prayer meeting, something like that to take seriously about praying with others. I'm going to invite Richard. As he prayed this morning, it was not coincidence, it was God moving that he, because there's various different ones who pray for Sunday service, but our spirits were in line that I'm talking about praying in groups and corporately, so we're going to do it. Look around. We are sitting together corporately, and we're going to hear some amens and yes to various prayer requests, and we're going to come together, two, three, there's like a hundred of us, and we're going to say amen, yes, Lord, to various things. And God will do it. As Richard said, God will do it in this corporate time of prayer. So let's get ready to pray. <laughs>